Hello, Los Angeles arts community and beyond. I'm Carolina Sique, and this is ISC's Artbreak Podcast. William Shakespeare. You know him. You know some of his work, if not all of it. Whether from a high school English class, or a movie adaptation of one of his plays, or even a full production at the Globe Theatre in London, it's no hyperbole that William Shakespeare's name is one of the most well-known around the world. His timeless plays, poems, and sonnets are hailed as some of the best writing of the English language. There are whole classes dedicated to studying his writings, and whole theater companies dedicated to bringing his plays to life. Kind of like this one theater company I know in Los Angeles that I work as marketing assistant for and create a podcast for. And yet, since the sensation of Shakespeare became more prominent in popular culture, there are still people asking the question, did the man we know as William Shakespeare actually write those amazing works of art? What if it was someone else who used his name? The Shakespeare authorship conspiracy is almost as well known as Shakespeare's plays themselves. At ISC, this really got us thinking. What is it about conspiracy theories that's so enticing? Why would someone feel more inclined to believe in a theory rather than demonstrated fact? To gain some insight, I sat down over Zoom with our managing director at Independent Shakespeare Company, David Melville, who knows as much about Shakespeare as one could know, and catching her on the heels of a video essay she created called Who Wrote Shakespeare, I also sat down with Amanda Hootman, who you might know from ISC's Anita Berber is Dead and A Christmas Carol. Hi, thanks for having me. Hello, Carolina. It's good to be back. <laughs> it's nice to be back. I missed the podcast greatly, um, and I'm really excited about this topic in particular. Um, and so, Amanda, you made a video about six months ago about the Shakespeare authorship conspiracy, which makes sense because everybody was talking about Shakespeare creating King Lear during the pandemic. So from what you found out, why does this conspiracy exist in the first place? Um, so the uh, the Shakespeare authorship question is um, the idea that the man from Stratford that we know as William Shakespeare did not write the works attributed to him. Um, so the case that I kind of make in the in the video, which is a case that like, um, by the way, like I'm I'm not a, an Elizabethan scholar. I'm not a Jacobean scholar. I am an actor who is gifted at taking research that other people do and and formatting it to be like a uh, uh, funny, uh, funny, cute video essays. The case that I make in the video, which is very similar to the case that uh, James Shapiro makes in his book, um, Contested Will, is that the Shakespeare authorship question uh, really had its roots in the kind of like deification of Shakespeare. So uh, there's a few different kind of things that uh, kind of play into how the authorship question became um, a, a conspiracy theory. Um, but one of the biggest cases that I think James Shapiro uh, sets up the kind of uh, the raising Shakespeare up onto a pedestal that uh, really started to kind of take shape in the 18th century. From what I was um, briefly researching, a lot of folks believe, because there's not very much documentation of journals by Shakespeare or original works with his name on it, that maybe it wasn't him after. I'm sure, you know, in, in the 1600s, that was very hard to preserve in the first place. Well, a lot happened since then. You know, Shakespeare was a, around, you know, died in, what was it, 1613 or 1616? Mm -hmm. I always get that wrong. Um, but 
uh, so yeah, he died, and um, you know, even at the end of his life, he was not the most popular playwright in London. Uh, you know, in his heyday, he was extremely popular, but you know, he'd been surpassed by other writers. He was out of fashion, um, and then comes the, uh, the English Civil War, and the Puritans get in power, and they don't like theatre, so they they ban theater making and playmaking and acting and they knocked down all the theaters in 1642. Um, don't exactly know how they did that, but you know, certainly they were raised to the ground and maybe some of them were burnt and some of the, you know, and all the contents of those, it has vanished. We don't quite know what happened to them, but you know, certainly if they weren't destroyed at that period and they did make it through the, um, what do we call that? Is it the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell? Um, that when the, the king came back in the 1660s, uh, in 1666, the whole of London caught fire and everything burned to the ground. So, you know, if there were all these amazing manuscripts signed by William Shakespeare, <laughs> they vanished probably then. Um, you know, there's, and there's evidence, somebody says, you know, contemporary to Shakespeare says that I love Shakespeare and I'm gonna go out and buy his portrait today. And, and so that, from that we can divine that you know actually you probably could in London in Shakespeare's day uh, get a little miniature of a picture of Shakespeare but they're all gone you know um, and it's it's not a conspiracy it's just like un, it's unlucky people didn't hold on to those things a lot of great works of literature ended up as the lining of pythons um, <laughs> you know starting fires uh, that sort of thing so it's you know they're rather mundane reasons as to why we don't have uh, a lot of documentary uh, evidence that ties Shakespeare to his work, but there is a substantial and, and very large amount that, that connects Shakespeare with his work, far more than there is that connects uh, writers like Christopher Marlowe to, to their work. There's actually nothing, I think, in in the lifetime of Christopher Marlowe that connects him and, and, and his work as a playwright. So, um, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's easy to say, you know, what do they say? Uh, absence of evidence isn't, evidence of absence it sort of boils down to mm, yeah and actually like to your point about people didn't often save these kinds of, of things uh, like manuscripts and that kind of thing back in the day um when ben johnson and the surviving members of the kingsmen um decided to put together the first folio following Shakespeare's death. Um, it was actually kind of a big project trying to gather the existing fragments of plays because uh, manuscripts were kind of written uh, for uh, theater companies back then is um, you would just be given your part. You would be given uh, fragments of a play and then you would rehearse it together. So actors brought their own remaining fragments that they had. People had to try to recall scenes that they did. And the first folio was um, a kind of an aggregate and a compilation of probably what they all were. Um, so like the original manuscripts for, for all of the plays weren't hung on to. There were um, a few quartos of a play, I think, uh, Macbeth was printed in a quarto during Shakespeare's lifetime. A couple of his poems were printed in quartos, and those were um, those were sold. Those were printed and sold. But there weren't any it, there weren't any manuscripts in Shakespeare's hand that uh, that kind of remained even beyond his lifetime. In the 18th century, an original manuscript um, donated to. I want to say the British Museum, I can't remember, um, of Thomas More, which is a play that um, Shakespeare had a hand in adding some, some 
punch-ups too. And there are a couple of uh, handwriting samples that were unidentified for several years until the uh, mid 20th century. And uh, one of the handwriting samples, handwriting sample D, is largely accepted to be uh, one of the only existing examples of William Shakespeare's uh, writing. We do have a lot of his signatures, but there's like a passage that they call handy that's um, a pretty extensive passage of, of, uh, of examples of his actual handwriting that, that still exist. Definitely. But you, you, you know, you get those, those naysayers who want to say it's his handwriting, but did he write it himself? Um, but I know that one of the big other reasons that they think that Shakespeare couldn't have written it not only is it the lack of evidence, but but that they think that for somebody who knew so much about aristocrats, who technically was not an aristocrat himself, how could he write something like Hamlet? How could he have listened in on those kinds of conversations around him if he was not associated with those group of people? Um, and one of the big conspiracies was that Edward de Vere of Oxford wrote at, uh, under Shakespeare's name, and it made sense to some folks because... Edward de Vere has writings about going to places like Verona and so many other places that Shakespeare cites in his plays. So what do y'all think about that particular conspiracy? I think it's, well, of course, all the great British authors were ar ar aristocrats. Um, you, couldn't get a, you couldn't get a look in as a poet or a playwright unless you were a lord. <laughs> that, that's not true at all. I think there's, I think, I can only really think of Lord Byron, who I think was probably disowned by the rest of the... Uh, the peerage, um, uh, you know, it's 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 crazy to say that. I mean, it just it just it defies. You know, what's great about being an artist is an, an actor and a playwright is uh, that you use your imagination to to create these different worlds. You, it's so bland and boring to say that the only way you can possibly write about these things is if you've actually lived them. Um, that's just a, a, a very silly argument. And, um, you know, the, the conspiracy theories that surround the Earl of Oxford are, are, are kind of interesting and they're all, they're all based on corollaries. They're not based on any single fact. There's no actual single fact, uh, contemporary statement or evidence or anything that connects um, that, that Shakespeare didn't write his own work from his own uh, time period. It's only really a, a couple of hundred years later that people start to make this idea up that he didn't write it. Mm -hmm. um, and the Earl of Oxford was indeed um, a playwright or, or a poet, and, uh, and his poetry was published, and it's not very good. If you get a chance to read it, it's really, you know, it's very bland compared to Shakespeare's. But, you know, you certainly can look into his life and see that there are, are, are examples of things that kind of uh, coincide with Shakespeare and one of the popular ones is that he had uh, uh, two cousins called Bernard and uh, uh, Francis and this is evidence that he has to have written Hamlet because Hamlet begins with two soldiers called Bernardo and Francisco um, quite ignoring the fact that Shakespeare had a son called Hamlet <laughs> um, you know and and Oxford Oxford was famous in his own lifetime uh, for uh, breaking wind in front of Queen Elizabeth, uh, of which he was so embarrassed that he he sent himself into exile and went abroad for two years, and eventually he he came back to court and presented him presented himself to which Queen Elizabeth said, "Ah, oh, Oxford, we had forgot the fart." <laughs> <laughs> I had. 
It was a really, it was, it was a nasty place. He shot one of his servants, apparently, and blamed it on someone else. Um, anyway, but he's our guy. He's the guy who has to have written Shakespeare. <laughs> that, yeah, um, about like the fact that he's a, a, he was a published poet, there uh, has been um, the development of this thing called stylometrics, which is um, an algorithmic analysis of language. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard to fool a stylometric analysis because they take um, several data points, some of which are the use of common words um, and, and like how often you use them, sentence length, uh, sentence, which obviously like when he's working in iambic pentameter maybe doesn't help as much, but when he's working in prose, sentence length, sentence structure, uh, lots of like little teeny tiny details to create basically kind of a map of the way uh, your language patterns work. Um, and using stylometric analysis and running, running several um, Shakespeare plays, poems, samples of writing through a computer and comparing it to stylometric algorithms of Shakespeare and uh, of, uh, sorry, Oxford and uh, Marlowe and uh, several other um, candidates for authorship has found that none of them are a match. So whoever wrote as Shakespeare only wrote as Shakespeare. So it's either William Shakespeare or someone else who never wrote as anything other than William Shakespeare. There's only one person who uh, who fits the uh, the stylometric map of Shakespeare's writing style. A lot of the authorship question in general, and especially a lot of uh, the, the theories as they relate to uh, Edward de Vere, kind of comes back to um, Shakespeare's education. The idea that that because he didn't go to a uh, university, um, he couldn't have written the things that he wrote. Therefore, it has to be someone who was um, well-bred and well-educated. And and that kind of like betrays somewhat of a misunderstanding of like what English grammar schools were like at the time. Um, he almost certainly would have gone to grammar school. No, there aren't schoolhouse records of him, which is like a big sticking point with, um, with anti-Stratfordians. But record keeping was just like not very good back then. <laughs> like, they yeah, just didn't take attendance. Yeah, I would think so. Ground zero for where this conspiracy theory starts, because yeah. yes, you're right. There's no evidence that he went to to grammar school in Stratford, but the records don't exist, and they don't have records until like sort of thirty or four years, thirty or forty years later. So there's no evidence that anybody went to grammar school in Stratford. But they've taken that one piece and said because Shakespeare didn't go to grammar school. Um, how could he possibly have written these plays? He's illiterate, which, you know, you cannot be an actor. And Shakespeare was first and foremost an actor. You can't be an actor and be illiterate. You have to be able to read. <laughs> yeah, you have to read your part. And yet his, his father was the chief alderman of Stratford. So uh, basically the mayor of Stratford. So he almost certainly would have gone to the grammar school um, where he would have learned rhetoric. He would have learned a little bit of Latin and Greek. He would have learned English literature. And he probably would have stayed there until he was about 13 or 14. And then he probably would have gone and taken an apprenticeship at his, uh, at his dad's glove making shop, which also like... They they also kind of poo-poo the fact that he's the son of a glove maker. That was like a good upper middle class job. Like they're they're bourgeois. <laughs> oh, Christopher Marlowe was the son of a, a a cobbler. Ben Johnson was the son of a brickmaker. I mean, it's like you know that class of people that that, that had that education 
you know, the, the, the grammar school education was a relatively new thing in, in Britain at that time. And uh, it was pumping out uh, this over-educated class of people that really, there weren't enough jobs for them. So that's why the theater really flourished back then is because there was, you know, there was the one place where you could go if you had this kind of clerical education. Ben Johnson mocked Shakespeare for having bad Greek and Latin skills as well. More Latin and less Greek. <laughs> There was a lot of folks, like you said, Amanda, like centuries after the fact, like like Charlie Chaplin and, and a bunch of um, other uh, celebrities and theorists who want to say that that if you didn't have this kind of education, you couldn't have this kind of imagination, which I think is classist um, in and of itself. To think that like you couldn't have these these great thoughts about the way life works or or what Verona and Venice and... Scotland must have been like during these times. Yeah, and, and Charles Dickens um, left school at the age, at age 12. He certainly didn't go to university. He had to, you know, his parents were in debtor's prison and he had to support them by going and, and gluing labels onto uh, shoe polish. You know, he's the second greatest writer in the English language, debatably. The second greatest white English male writer in the English language. <laughs> That that's a that's a good classification for him. <laughs> nice save. <laughs> I really think that that goes in line with what you were talking about, Amanda. The the deification of Shakespeare, and I, I really think that it's it's this idea that someone human could not have made something this good, or someone who was just a regular guy off the street could have have made something this genius or or this great. Which I think goes into like this next part of the podcast, which is conspiracy theories. Why do people make them in the first place? According to the New York Times, they did a study on conspiracy theories, and they found that there was no real correlation between like low-income versus high-income person um, race or background. You, everybody was susceptible to believing some sort of conspiracy theory, and I know that you touched that in your video, Who Wrote Shakespeare, a lot. Yeah, and um... I like that you note that it doesn't matter your uh, socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, it, it's not a matter of how intelligent you are or aren't. Um, I would say the the conditions for kind of buying into conspiracy theories has a lot more to do with your emotional state at any given time, um, which is in my video, I kind of touch on a little bit with uh, Delia Bacon, who was one of the very first prominent um, uh, anti-Stratfordians. Um, I didn't want to play too heavily into like the woman gorned uh, aspect of it, but she she kind of um, threw herself into um, authorship study following a, a pretty pretty harrowing personal experience. Um, and I feel like in, you know, uh, kind of delving into the conspiracy theories like QAnon and that kind of thing, one of the, uh, or other like radical groups online, um, one of the common denominators that kind of unifies everybody in these kind of radical groups is an isolation from the people around them. And um, I feel like believing in conspiracy theories or needing a conspiracy theory to an extent kind of has more to do with your emotional state. I also, uh, I think there's a, um, there's a need to craft like overarching narratives, like especially, um, or even of like, like high level evil and wrongdoing, they, they bring a sense of control. And especially um, as is 
the case with the authorship question and um, as the case with QAnon and stuff, when there's some kind of a cipher that only, you know, a select group of people have the key to um, explaining why there isn't like rage over the bad thing. So uh, the only the, the small group of people know what's going wrong. And uh, I think that's uh, very appealing to people. It gives people like a sense of control at a time when their lives feel like they're kind of out of control. Um, yeah. The, the, the cons- like you said, Amanda, the, the, the Shakespeare conspiracy really started in the 18th century. And, and I think it follows a similar pattern to other conspiracy theories, because it's like, here's this, this thing that we're presented with, and it doesn't fit my worldview of things. So, uh, like a, you were saying, Amanda, the, the, uh, by the 18th century, Shakespeare had become sort of deified in a way. Um, the, you know, he'd gone from being a, a handy playwright, because after the Restoration, there weren't a lot of plays. You know, all the playwrights are given up playwriting. So they had to start producing the old work and they went, oh, this guy's pretty good. And, you know, cut to like sort of 60 or 70 years later, you know, he's, he's a genius for all time. And uh, David Garrick, I think he didn't, he have a, a Shakespeare Jubilee in Stratford where they were going to celebrate him. And it's, that was kind of the moment where it really became like, you know, Shakespeare became like this sort of English national hero um, for literature. But then with the few pieces that they kind of pulled together of his life, um, it just doesn't, fit that narrative of this great genius plus also some, some of the things that exist in the plays they don't like you know they don't like the more you know they don't like the you know the the sex gags and the farting and the drinking and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff so 18th century productions tend to sort of excise those uh, elements and you know that they would rewrite them and sort of you know they couldn't have possibly have been Shakespeare it must have been the bawdy players or whatever um but I think it's at that point when you know that the, the Shakespeare was this this great noble hero, you know, in that very sort of uh, snobby era of the 18th century, they had to sort of reinvent him as of, as one of their own, who had to be an educated, you know, aristocratic type person. So, and obviously Shakespeare didn't fit that bill, so they started looking around for well, who does? Um, and doesn't do you think that that sort of follows the same pattern that we find with you know, like now we're talking about the election, and the election obviously hasn't gone some people's way, and that doesn't fit their worldview. So now we have to find, we have to create a narrative uh, mm-hmm. that will will explain that. So as soon as you said that, um, um, that it doesn't fit their worldview, I thought, huh, that that really makes sense. And then I thought about those those folks that believe that the Earth is flat, um, and their argument is always, if the Earth is round, why haven't I fallen off into space yet? <laughs> <laughs> which makes me laugh. Are they just being willfully sort of whimsically stupid? I think to them, it makes sense, um, which is, I mean, to, I'm sure 10% of them, um, which I think is something you had said in your, your video, Amanda, for like 90% of these people, they're just, they're trolls. They, they want to um, get a rise out of folks. But I think another 10% probably thinks this way. Um, and, you know, the same could be said about um, one of the conspiracy theories that always just baffled me was the Holocaust, how some people think the Holocaust just didn't happen. And I think it's it's part of a, it's a coping mechanism in the, to say this thing in history didn't happen because I don't want it to be true. I think that really says a lot to what you were, you were talking about. And so those things are running through my head. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I was just reading a book 
called They Thought They Were Free, uh, which is one of the very first books that was written about like the average everyday Nazi uh, following the the Second World War. It was written in the 60s and it was actually a Jewish American gentleman. He hid the fact that he was Jewish, uh, who went over to Germany and interviewed uh, just 10 normal men, like a baker, a, a professor who were members of the Nazi party. And that denial of the Holocaust or um, the soft kind of like Holocaust denial, which is the denial of how many um, and that kind of thing, uh, that denial started right away because there is um, there is a need to protect your own like mental state. Um, and then there there's also a number of bad actors who, uh, you know, the narrative is, is very convenient for them for their own political ends. But you you also mentioned um, I know you made a, you made a reference to the the Finland conspiracy from the beginning of my video, which is like I wanted to relate it to a silly um, a sillier conspiracy theory that uh, the country of Finland doesn't exist, and um, this is this is like a fun little Reddit thing that is like ninety percent a joke, but there's like ten percent of people that genuinely believe it that uh, I get sent like once a year because um, I'm Finnish and like once a year, one of my friends will suddenly stumble upon this like Reddit conspiracy and I'll get a text and I'll be like, yes, I know. I know about the Finland conspiracy, but I wanted to relate it to uh, the Shakespeare authorship question because similarly, um, the justification that they, uh, that Finland truthers use is that no country can be that good. So it's a deification of Finland. I, I mean, I, I, I know a lot of Finnish people and I, 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 I know they're very proud of their country. I think they would disagree that it's like the number one country in the world. But I, I know, David, like you, you've had the conversation with Melissa. She's said to you, like, why, do, why does it matter? Why do you care? Um, and I actually, I, I kind of think that the, uh, the authorship question is, somewhat like flat eartherism where it is kind of like silly on the surface but flat eartherism and the authorship question both have their fair share of like anti-semites <laughs> or like and there's like there's some dark people and and um like j thomas loney who is the the first guy who put forward the uh the oxfordian theory was a, a medievalist who believed that we should um, live either under a fascist dictatorship or a traditional kind of like a monarchist oligarchy um, and uh, and also was like quite a bit of an anti-Semite himself. Um, so there is like this darker side to it and there are people who try to use conspiracies, um, even the ones that are quite innocuous seeming, to... Uh, more nefarious ends yeah I've always I mean I have to go and I have to I have the I have the great delight to every once in a while go into classrooms and and talk about Shakespeare and it's often it's one of the first things that I get asked who wrote Shakespeare and I know that we think of this conspiracy theory as yeah it's a bit of fun you know it's a uh, who wrote Shakespeare it's a it's a little parlor game we play or whatever it doesn't really matter. And it, I don't think that's true. I do think it matters. And I think, you know, the fact that the kids in a school are asking that question means that they're, they're sort of approaching it from the point of view that the facts don't 
necessarily matter. It's it's how we feel about something, um, because there are no facts that support that anyone else other than Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, and yet it's reached a point now where it's ubiquitous. And and you know, so I think in a way it's dangerous because it it's it's like one of these sort of original conspiracy theories, and and uh, for kids to be in a classroom and thinking that facts you know, are malleable and fluid and can be changed to support whatever you want. Well, that's not true. But the fact, but it's becoming our reality now. And it certainly has been for the last four years that facts really only add up to one side of a story and there are alternative facts and um, they have just as much validity. So um, for me, I, I connect it that way. And I do, I, on that level, I find it dangerous. Um, and on another personal level, I find it like sort of insulting to the man, you know, that this is life work and his legacy. And a lot of us, myself included, we make our living out of him and his legacy. And uh, I wouldn't like to meet him one day and, and say, oh, you really did write it. Oh, cool. Well, thanks for looking after me all that time. You know, I, so I, I stick up for him whenever I can. Sometimes it makes me very unpopular, depending on <laughs> where I'm at. Um, I do use it as a litmus test sometimes. <laughs> a, a couple of times I've been interviewing a director or something and, and uh, we'll be getting along really well and then, they'll just, and then they'll just drop it in and you're like, why do you believe this crap? We can't work together, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've just, I've always been like a little bit of an Occam's razor person, like, he's he's it's it's him guys <laughs> it's him if if suddenly tomorrow some you know um some archaeologist on a dig somewhere in central london in the sewers discovers a manuscript a manuscript from somebody confessing it all uh that is that is found to be authentic fine <laughs> but there's just no documentary evidence to support anyone other than william shakespeare sorry to disappoint everybody yeah, to your point, David, I think the conspiracy itself kind of discourages people from uh, researching kind of like, like, as you said earlier, some folks say that they don't have any evidence of him going to grammar school. But if you look into it further, there's no evidence of anybody going to grammar school. Um, and especially for young folks who are coming in and out of school, if if they just think the only research I have to make is what, what I perceive in my own thoughts and my own experience rather than actually researching facts and researching what's going on, then it, it doesn't make for, um, I don't know, a fair world, especially with this, this fake news business. Anybody can just say fake news nowadays and then people will start to doubt it. It's, it's become like this buzzword um, to allow people to doubt things that have actually been proven by scientists and, People much smarter than myself. Okay. Yeah, it must, it's a, it's a, it must be a human instinct, I guess, to, 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 uh, to be attracted by that, those kind of theories. There's, we had a board member, uh, Rick Kreis, and he's a playwright as well, and he wrote a, a play for us, um, which I performed, hmm. called Solemn Mockeries, and it's about this Shakespeare forger from the 18th century called William Henry Ireland and, and his 
story is really quite fascinating and it and it really does center around that era era in the 18th century when Shakespeare was being deified and and of course it deals with the fact that there was a dearth of information you know where were these manuscripts where are all the artifacts you know where's Shakespeare's library where are all these things and so William Henry's uh, Ireland it was it was a 17 year old boy and his father didn't really love him and in order to to, to sort of win his father's favor he started making these forgeries of Shakespeare documents. His father was a, an antiquarian and collected old books and, and was fascinated by Shakespeare and, was, and would go to Stratford and buy uh, knickknacks um, that were all faked. I mean, he bought, he bought Shakespeare's original courting chair in which Shakespeare courted um, Anne Hathaway. He bought uh, uh, some, you know, some, some. Uh, I think it was like a, a matchbox that was made from the uh, the walnut tree or whatever. The, no, what is it? The mulberry tree from his garden and stuff. This mulberry tree that apparently must have been enormous because it it furnished like this huge sort of industry of of, of knickknacks. <laughs> um, but uh, so William Henry, in order to to win his father's love, he started forging these little. Uh, originally just like sort of conveyancing deeds and stuff with Shakespeare's signature on it, just very sort of innocuous documents. And his father was so, you know, so where did you find these? And he said, oh, uh, I met this man and he's got a large trunk full of things like this. <laughs> he said, well, you must get me more. And so he just like kept furnishing him with more and he got more and more audacious and he would write these little sonnets. He wrote a letter from Queen Elizabeth to uh, Shakespeare addressed to care of the globe, London. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and William Henry's uh, father was, a, um, I guess, a, a, a staunch Protestant, was really worried about these rumors that Shakespeare was Catholic. So, so his son would write these sort of, uh, a, a protestation of the Protestant faith signed by William Shakespeare. And then he wrote, um, what did he wrote? He wrote a, a, a clean version of King Lear where he <laughs> added scenes. <laughs> that got rid of all the sort of the, the rude references. And then he got so audacious, he wrote two plays, um, one called Vortigo and another one, I think it was Henry II. The, um, and Vortigo was actually produced by Sheridan at the um, Drury Lane Theatre and caused a riot because there were people on one side who believed it. And then by that point, some people were beginning to think that it was all a little bit suspicious. Um, but yeah, that's that was sort of fueled by the same desire to really fill in all the gaps of Shakespeare's life. I think that kind of answers, I guess, the question of why conspiracy theories is like people either want to fill in this the gaps or they want to explain why the gaps aren't are there in the first place. But there seems to be because I think filling in the gaps can be a a good thing, a, a great way to use the imagination. Um, about what might have happened as well as like combining that with facts but facts has to be part of it yeah it is frustrating because we know you know there are these limited facts but then there's another subsection of rumors about Shakespeare's life and what's uh, what I find sad is that they often get just discounted because they can't be authenticated so they just get dismissed like you know he was caught uh, I guess hunting deer or poaching deer in so somebody, I think it was Lacey, was it Lacey? Uh, so the, the local sort of uh, lord of the manor and, uh, and, and he was in his personal park stealing his deer and, and was nearly caught and that's why Shakespeare had to run away to London and um, uh, you know lots, lots of other little rumours like that but you know they get, they get dismissed because um, 
because they can't be corroborated. But, you know, uh, I like to believe all that stuff because, you know, there's there's no evidence that it didn't happen. Um, and it does sort of add up, you know, makes an interesting story. So. <laughs> um. I've heard anti-Stratfordians use that theory, use that story to justify to me why he's like, um, a, a terrible rogue and an awful person who couldn't have who couldn't have written those works because he was busy poaching deer. Like, well, it just kind of sounds like he's a little bit of a scamp when he was a teenager. Were we all? <laughs> yeah, he's off poaching deer. He's knocking up the local farmer's daughter, who's six years older than him. Yeah. <laughs> quite a quite a precocious young man. I, the one I love is the um, that. Uh, Shakespeare actually became an actor because the the troupe that became his acting troupe, they were playing in Stratford and there was a duel and one of the actors was killed in a duel. And I think we know this through uh, court records. Um, and then some people like Shapiro, I guess, um, have filled in the in the, the blanks that, well, that, that theatre company left the town minus one actor and it's around that time that Shakespeare disappeared so put two and two together <laughs> you know there was there must have come to we're down one actor can you get on stage and do something there's another lovely rumor that that um he would because his father was a glover and they would uh, uh, gloves were a good sort of romantic valentine's day gift or whatever and there's this theory or that Shakespeare wrote little uh, love sonnets and poems to put inside the glove so that when you gave them as a gift they came with a with a little dedication um oh, I, I want somebody to buy me gloves with a sonnet inside yeah so romantic nowadays yeah. it would be latex a packet of latex gloves <laughs> and, and some sanitizer <laughs> a 2020 <laughs> 2020 gift <laughs> a 2020 love story and I think those like like that, I know so many other stories are very imaginative for, for the way to fill in those gaps. But I think the fake news of it all is, is not a really good way to use that imagination, I would say. Totally. I love the idea of Shakespeare fan fiction. Shakespeare in love is a is a romp. It's a great one. We all know it's we all know it's just fan fiction. Fine. It's when you start to deny reality because it's more convenient that you run into trouble okay. yeah and if you're gonna if you're gonna put words into Shakespeare's mouth you better be as good as Tom Stoppard <laughs> great so I guess um one of the a closing thought that I had was a a quote from John Bate who's a Shakespeare expert at the University of Warwick if Shakespeare hadn't been metamorph metamorphosized into a god nobody would think it was worth having an authorship controversy about him in the first place which yeah. I think you know a lot of our thoughts kind of culminate into this this one theory that if he really if he wasn't as big as he was then nobody would give you know two flying whatever's about him that puts it in a nutshell very nicely I think we're all prone to conspiracy theories as well it's uh, you know we don't all we're not all immune to it for the longest time I've I've always been a sucker for the Kennedy assassination and the grassy knoll and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's so seductive because you just, you know, you can get sucked into all the minutiae in it and suddenly everything makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's a Pruder film. That's a Pruder film. <laughs> <laughs> right now there, there are conspiracies that are happening and often a lot of these conspiracies have like either a nugget of truth or, or something um, like 
the Shakespeare authorship question, the the fact that they that the um, school records weren't very detailed or existed at all is is very inconvenient. Like, um, so there's yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes you know the the truth is just the most obvious thing that's staring you in the face and. That can be rather boring, but you know, <laughs> but it is. I like that Shakespeare is the person who wrote Shakespeare. I think that's a much more interesting story than some horrible toffee aristocrat or uh, whatever. I mean, it's an amazing story that someone from you know a middle class background with you know, uh, you know, no particular advantage in life and no a particular disadvantage um, can achieve such greatness. I mean, it's. It, it really, it speaks to the, you know, the, the things that makes America great, which is, you know, this principle of, of a country based on meritocracy, which makes me, I always, it always baffles me that the, the Shakespeare uh, conspiracy stuff gets so much traction here, because it really goes against, you know, what America's about. So classist. I had to agree with David. Accepting that William Shakespeare was, in fact, the man who was responsible for so many timeless theatrical works is a much more interesting, relatable story, even if some people don't believe it. I'd love to know, what conspiracy theories have you heard about? Which ones did you believe? And why? Before we end this Artbreak podcast, I need to tell you how we're spending the holiday season here at ISC. This would have been our 16th year producing A Christmas Carol with Charles Dickens, and there is little this year we miss more than welcoming you to the ISC studio for this beloved event. But we can still connect and share in the Dickensian world of magic, redemption, and of course, flaming punch. 12 Days of Dickens will bring unique, joyful installments of all things Dickens right to your inbox. Starting on December 14th, 12 Days of Dickens unfolds over the course of 12 days of recordings and short videos, including an audiobook recording of The Chimes, read by our own David Melville, Drinking with Dickens, a streaming event of creating Dickensian cocktails, exclusive performance excerpts from A Christmas Carol with David Melville and Kalyan Ung, a deep dive into the life of Charles Dickens with myself, your ISC Artbreak podcast producer, Carolina Sique, a bunch of special guests, and so much more. I cannot wait for y'all to see this. In addition to this free content, you can purchase virtual ISC gifts for you and your loved ones for the holidays, like a personalized Dickens gram for the friend who loves everything ISC, and an audiobook reading of A Christmas Carol to enjoy on Christmas Day with your family. To learn more and to sign up for the 12 Days of Dickens, head on over to iscla.org slash Dickens 2020. That's all for Artbreak. Don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Continue to stay safe as we rage through this pandemic. Wear a mask, not just for your safety, but the safety of others. Please be kind to one another this holiday season. We all need a little bit more kindness now more than ever. And remember, be socially distant not emotionally.